We're back for another episode of the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin with Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. Um, how's it in Texas? Is it like summer already? It was summer. We had a brief summer earlier in the week, and today it's very cold again. But I think summer's coming back tomorrow or the next day, so I'm not worried. How's the weather in Poland? Oh, it's nice. It's nice, but I think we're going to go back into the cold, the cold front. So, um, yeah. yeah. Such is life. Well, exciting uh, exciting for us today that we have yet another really interesting guest to talk about. We love talking about art. Um, we love talking about um, just especially in the context of European civilization and sort of the great artifacts, not only of the kind of, uh, you know, our, our European civilization past, but also what's going on now and what may be going on in the future. So to talk about some of that stuff today and just to kind of visit a little bit is William Newton, who is uh, an art critic for The Spectator. He's written for other places as well. He's a graduate of the Georgetown School of Foreign Service and the University of Notre Dame Law School. He's a lawyer, and uh, but also a... a um, a, a critic, a, a man of a man of art, a man of letters, somebody I've been looking forward to talking to in reality for quite some time. We've we've corresponded over the years, but anyway, Billy, uh, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I, I I appreciate you guys having me on the show. Well, we're excited to have you. And um, one of the things we want to start with is is the country of Spain which is a place where you go often. And when you go there, you tend to go to really interesting places like great museums. And I love looking at your Instagram account and seeing all the great food that you're eating over there. So let's just start off before we get into art. What's the fascination for you with Spain and why do you go there? So <clears throat> my, uh, my mom was from Spain. Uh, my parents met in Barcelona because my dad was my mom's uh, English teacher at the North American Institute there, which was an organization that was started um, by USAID and others during the uh, Franco regime, uh, because there was a realization that Spain was going to need to transition back into being a democracy um, after the end of the Franco period. And so there was an investment that was made to bring uh, people over and teach uh, English to teach American culture and history and, and that sort of thing. And so my dad was one of the people who did that. And my mom happened to be one of his students. Um, she did not get an A in her creative writing class for, for dating the professor, but uh, they ended up getting married anyway. Um, and we have, as a family, uh, have been going, you know, back and forth ever since then. Um, and I'm very fortunate in that uh, in my current work environment, I'm able to go over for about three weeks at a time every six months. Um, my, my job is such that the way that we are rewarded for doing a good job is instead of giving us more money, they give us more time off. But the time off comes with an expiration date you can't just keep accumulating it so you have to take the time off because they don't want you to burn out um and so about 10 years ago uh, when i started in this job and this started happening i said can i go to spain i mean i'd rather not just sit around the house and you know clean out cupboards and things um they said sure that's fine um so every six months i go over 
Um, I see most of my families in Barcelona. I see um, some family that are that are in Madrid, and then I also take the time to do a lot of day trips. Uh, I like to just kind of get around the country. Spain has a great uh, high speed rail network, as you may know. Um, it's probably the best in the world after uh, after Japan, um, and they've really invested in that infrastructure to the point that um, it rather saddens me, for example, when I have to go from DC, where I live, to New York um, to see an exhibition or attend an event or something, because it takes a long time to get there, assuming that the train actually leaves on time and, you know, arrives on time. Uh, and the same distance or even greater uh, in Spain can be covered in at least half the time and at a third of the cost. Um, so I'm very fortunate in that when I go over, my vacations are not me sitting under a palm tree, uh, having a cocktail. Um, it's, I've made a list of things that I want to see places I want to go, uh, people I want to meet. And I get all of that lined up so that when I go over there, um, I have a working vacation, if you will. Um, part of that is because, um, the magazine takes advantage of the fact that I'm over there because I'll say, you know, I could write an article about this or I could meet with so-and-so. Um, and that was the case with uh, my most recent article that was published this month. Um, but because The Spectator is both a print and a digital magazine, um, most things are only online these days, but, you know, Specky is still printed. Um, because of publisher deadlines, um, we need to know in advance what we're going to be doing as writers. And so I need to pitch things well in advance, not only because if I'm going to meet, for example, with experts at a museum or something, I need to get all of those ducks lined up before I get on the plane. But in addition to which, um, the printer will say, if this is going to go in this particular month's edition, we need to have everything by a certain date and then you kind of work backwards from there obviously it has to get to my editor the layout person has to figure out what images they're going to work on etc so although i just got back um about a month ago i'm already lining up what i'm going to do <laughs> because i'm leaving again in three months and i uh if i'm going to do a piece over there then we need to make sure that that's kind of all signed off on and ready to go other than the actual writing uh, again before i even get on the plane no that's great um i mean i, I was in spain for six months uh, my jesuit college had uh has a branch in madrid but um it's an english-speaking program so i didn't have to learn spanish but i was i was so taken aback by the beauty of Spain, um, and particularly is the, the great metro in Madrid. I mean, that that thing, it totally surprised me. Um, but I mean, Madrid was one of these cities that you don't really hear that much about, but it's one of my favorite European cities. Um, and just walking the streets of Madrid with the Prado. And uh, what are some of your favorite museums to go to in Spain? So being um, half Catalan, um, as you know, your, your listeners may know, Barcelona is the capital of Catalonia, and there's always been a bit of a tension there, um, still going today, uh, between Barcelona and Madrid. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, 
it's a it's a little difficult to answer your question because um, Spain, like Italy, um, is extremely reg regional in terms of the artists that have been produced in particular areas, um, styles, movements, etc. And so, something that might be really you know amazing in one part of the country is going to be completely different in another. Another um, example of that is the National Museum of in Barcelona has what I would consider to be the greatest collection of Romanesque art in the world, so pre-Gothic, right? Um, and it is astonishing the number of Romanesque uh, wall frescoes that are there that have been detached from all of these, you know, 10th and 11th century churches and brought down into the city. But Madrid is nothing like that because Barcelona is a 2,000-year-old city. Madrid is really only about a 400-year-old city. And so the, the cultural patrimony in Madrid is completely different. When you go to the Prado, um, the Prado is really strong in Renaissance and Baroque art um, because that's when essentially Madrid comes to be. Um, it's not that they don't have Romanesque or Gothic art there. They do, but it tends to be imported from somewhere else. Uh, you know, Flanders, for example, uh, because the Spanish Netherlands were obviously, a, you know, a part of the Spanish crown for a long time. Um, but you don't go to the Prado to look at Gothic art. You go to the Prado to see Velázquez, to see Murillo, to see these, you know, great artists of the Counter-Reformation. Um, and if you want to see earlier stuff, then, you know, Barcelona and Catalonia, places like that are, are where you want to go. Um, and then there are also schools. So I went to Seville for the first time back in December and the Museum of Fine Arts in Seville, which is an incredible collection that is not really marketed very well. Um, I was surprised when I went that it only cost two euros to get in. <laughs> um, and when I went, there was almost nobody there. And, and the Seville School, which is a very heavily... Uh, Counter-Reformation school because Seville was one of the primary mm, sites for promoting the uh, dogma of what eventually became the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Um, and there are numerous images of the Immaculate Conception that we think of as kind of standard images of Our Lady um, that were painted by uh, artists that, you know, came out of that environment. Um, so when I went there recently, as I said, it was a you know it was a Friday, and normally on a Friday you have busloads of tourists that are you know filling all the museums and things. Um, but there was hardly anyone there, and I was there for hours. And every time I go to um, an art museum in Spain uh, for the first time, I'm like you, blown away by what's in there. Um, I don't think, as a whole, that the Spanish have done as good a job as say the Italians or the French or what have you, in terms of promoting their own artistic patrimony internationally. I think they know internally what they have um, and they celebrate that, but they don't make an enormous effort in the way that other countries do um, to sort of say, here's why you should come here. You know, here's this is this particular school of art that you should take a look at. Or this is this particular circle of painters that you might want to get to know. Uh, and so when I went to Seville, for example, um, there, uh, again, enormous collection. There, there, there was a painting by a, a, a Counter-Reformation artist named Subbarad, who, again, is not very well known outside of those of us who specialize in, in studying Spanish art. 
Um, but very important, and you would probably recognize some of his work if you saw it. But one of the paintings of his that's considered to be, if not his masterpiece, certainly up there, is in their collection. And, and I was aware of it, but I wasn't particularly planning to see it. Um, it was more sort of a bucket list thing that said, well, I'm going to see it because I never really thought much. And then it's a great lesson in something that I often will talk about in what I write or what I speak is that there's no substitute for seeing something in person. Um, you can learn a lot from books. You can learn a lot from different media. But if you have the opportunity to see something in person, it, it, you, you gain an understanding of it on, a, on an entirely different level. And so the, the painting in question is a miracle that happened in Grenoble um, with respect to St. Bruno. And again, I was familiar with it. Um, I had done my master's after law school at Sotheby's in, in England. I had specialized in what's called Spanish Golden Age painting, which is roughly 1550 to 1700. And he falls squarely in that period. And so I was very aware of the picture but then I saw it and I sat on a bench in front of it for probably a good 20 minutes and it took my breath away. And I, you know, I was like, now I understand this. Now I understand why so many art history books in talking about this painting have said, this is a really important painting. You really should see it. And then the same thing on the other side of the coin that happens with that is, is that you go into these museums in Spain and perhaps you are looking for something. Perhaps you go to the Prado and you want to see Las Meninas or you want to see um, Goya's black paintings or something like that. But then you see something else along the way that you didn't know about or you didn't expect to see. And as I was going through the museum, I was walking down this hallway and I looked through a doorway and I saw this painting that just made me stop because I'd never seen it before. And probably, you know, and I guessed who the artist was and what the subject was, but I was like, well, I have to circle back. And, just... and so I go in there <clears throat> and it's a painting of Santiago of, of you know, St. James the Apostle by uh, Rivera, who was a, um, a Spanish artist, but who spent most of his time working in Italy, um, kind of school of Caravaggio, that kind of thing. It's an incredibly simple painting and I still can't get it out of my head. It, it was just absolutely stunning. I'd never heard of it before. I'd never, you know, seen images of it before. And it's just hanging there on a wall, just kind of in this little dark room. And uh, to Andrew's point, you know, a number of people, when I posted images of it, because I think I took four or five pictures of it at different angles, when I posted it on Instagram, people wrote to me and they said, what is that? You know, because they'd never seen it before. And it was so, you know, moving. And it was so just fundamentally, I mean, it was painted in Italy, but it was just so fundamentally Spanish in, in, in tone. And like, they don't promote their own stuff very well. <laughs> you know, you get, you get the highlights. You get, you know, you go to the Reina Sofia in Madrid and you get to see Picasso's Guernica, you know. And, you know, you like I said, you go to the Prado and you see Las Meninas and that sort of thing. But one of the, one of the really great things in Madrid is that pretty much every city of any size had their own kind of art movement at some time whether it was you know during the gothic period or the renaissance or in the 19th century um and they have their own art museums some of them, you know the diocese uh the, you know, the cathedrals often have their own art museums 
Um, sometimes it's perhaps a historic home um, from an individual collector or family of collectors that they've donated it to the local uh, municipality to turn into a museum. And they're so worth visiting because they're, they really have so much stuff that, um, you know, artists that you've never heard of that are wonderful. Um, people who have had an influence on the history of, of Western art that are known in Spain, but that are not known outside of Spain. Um, and that for me is, is one of the joys of going over there is, is, you know, making what are for me new discoveries of people who I can see either where they're coming from artistically or how they have had an influence, you know, going forward on other people who may be better known, you know? Um, so yeah, that for me is, is apart from the food post, because everybody wants to know what I'm eating over there, uh, apart from the food and the, you know, music and going to the beach and stuff like that, like that's, that's really um, one of the sort of pedagogical things that I, that I enjoy about having these trips. Yeah, we encourage our listeners to follow you on social media to participate in, especially on Instagram, you post such great pictures of, of things. And it really is pedagogical. I mean, I've learned a lot um, following your travels. Let's stick with museums for just a minute. I want to get to your spectator, your latest spectator article in just a second. But you wrote an article that I just remembered, and I, I looked it up again today, several years or a few years ago, as we were sort of emerging from the worst part of COVID. I think it, I think you wrote it for the Federalist, where you you wrote you, you you it was this great kind of bit of reportage where you go to I think you went to maybe the National Gallery in Washington or you went to a, a museum in Washington, I believe, and you sort of report back on what it's like to be in a museum after COVID. Um, now, I I haven't been back to New York City since since COVID happened, but I used to love in New York to basically just like have a retreat at museums. Like I would just, you know, my wife and I, her, her mother lived in New York and we were in Connecticut and we would go in there. She'd go, go be with her mother or we'd be together or whatever it would be. And I would just, it would be a retreat. I would just walk the city and go to the, you know, um, the Frick or, you know, to the Met and like, you know, to sort of do a circuit, right? Well, you know, there's part of me that wonders what it's like because I haven't been back, but I have been back to London. I was back in London a year ago and I was so relieved that when I went to the National Gallery and I went to various other places there, they, they were heaving, they were thriving, there were school groups. It felt like I, I was so relieved because I was worried that like, is this going to come back? Are we going to be able to keep having these experiences? So I wonder maybe just what's your reflection been now a few years on like, is everything back to normal? Are you hopeful about, like, the future of museums, et cetera? Well, I think that, you know, we can almost, and we shouldn't do this, or we shouldn't have to do this, I should say, but I think you can almost tie it into going back to Mass, um, because I was very fortunate at my parish um, during the first part of the lockdown, and that the decision was taken uh, for those of us who were, you know, lectors or whatever, that if we were willing to show up, um, that they would um, live cast the mass uh, on the parish YouTube channel, um, and it would be the you know the two parish priests, the sacristan, the cantor, the organist, uh, the two lectors. Um, but in DC during the first part um, of of COVID, you the decision had been made in part because uh, Cardinal Gregory had kind of pushed back on this a bit with respect to religious observance, that they, they weren't going to close the churches completely, but that they could only have 10 people. Um, and so once a month, because I would come up on the schedule, 
when he was able to um, physically attend mass and and if properly disposed, you know, receive the sacrament. Um, but a lot of people didn't have that. And then when the restrictions were lifted, I thought, okay, well, now the churches are going to be full again, and they weren't. They weren't for a while. Um, and that was disturbing. I, I, it, it may have been a little bit different in D.C., only because D.C. is, is an area in which most people don't actually live in the city. Um, the city is more of a sort of a showplace, if you will. There's lots of museums and offices and hotels and things, but the city population itself is quite small. Um, there are you know, four or five times as many people who live in the surrounding uh, counties than as actually live in the city. And so there may be people who used to come into the city to go to mass, but then because of COVID and because of um, rioting and looting and so forth that was going on for a period of time, um, they may not have decided to come in. And so it took a long time um, for the parishes to recover in terms of attendance and some people may have simply decided that they just didn't want to come into the city anymore and they're going to stay in their suburban parishes if they're still going and at first i found that the museums were quite similar um people were just not coming and um they there were certainly no big tour buses full of kids um there were no foreigners because almost no one was coming here um even once the museums opened again and so for that particular piece i remember going back to the National Gallery, um, and it only stayed open for a few weeks and then it shut down again because I think the COVID numbers started going up. Um, but it was very sad. Um, and part of what made it sad was that <clears throat> the parts of the collection that I really wanted to see were closed off. Um, they only let us go in on one floor. Of the two floors in the building and the main building, and um, the stuff that I particularly like was on the upper floor. <laughs> so I was like, "Well, but it's a museum, and so I will go." As I was saying before, very large collection. I will find something new, you know, or perhaps see an old favorite or something like that, and and just kind of make it worthwhile. Um, I feel like now um, things are beyond back to normal. Um, I would say that. I, in conversations that I've had with people when I have gone to shows or, you know, speaking with gallery or, you know, institutional executives and things, there's a sense that people now realize that it could all be taken away from them. And there is a greater effort to actually go see things and to actually go get involved because there's an understanding, at least among adults, this could happen again and that people could be told stay in your homes shelter in place you know all that kind of stuff um in a, in a more prosaic way whenever i get frustrated in the airport or whenever i get frustrated on amtrak and that's not infrequent um i catch myself and say remember when you couldn't travel at all like remember when you were allowed to go outside of your house for like half an hour you know, to like get something from the store and, and that was kind of it. Um, so now the things that used to annoy me as um, an art critic when I would go see something in a, in a museum or a gallery of crowds and not being able to, you know, get a, a quiet moment in front of something. Um, I, again, I check myself and I say, but there was a time when you couldn't do this at all. 
And, and, and at least for me, that has been a, an adulting experience, you know, to sort of appreciate what you have and to make the most of, of the moment when you can have, you know, one of those cultural moments like you're describing of, hey, I'm downtown, I'm going to drop by the frick, you know, um, and it's something that I do uh, that I find myself downtown. I'll be like, oh, I'm going to go see the Goyas. You know, because there's there's a, there's a room. The National Gallery has ten paintings by Goya, and they're all in the same room. And so sometimes I'll just be like, I'm just going to pop in and you know, say hi to Paco, and <laughs> you know, see if all the stuff's still here, or if the, you know they're getting it cleaned, or it's blown, or something like that. So yeah, I I totally think that for a lot of people, um, COVID was a wake up call that that you need to live in the moment and that you need to to kind of take advantage of of you know the gifts that you're given in that. Billy, we'd like to transition now and talk about your most recent Spectator article, which I really enjoyed. I, I always enjoy your articles. I always feel like I'm kind of in the museum with you when you write about paintings and, and where you're going. But uh, I particularly I particularly like this one. You were writing about a, a painting by Salvador Dali that many of us will know. Um, and you're writing about it in the context of it being, for a while anyway, back in a museum in Dali's hometown. So I wonder if you could just, just tell us about the experience of what this painting is and why is it there and what was it like? So the the painting um, is known by various names, but the one that most people would recognize it as is as uh, under the title of the Christ of St. John of the Cross. And if you were to go into, you know, a print shop or a poster store or something like that, or, uh, you know, want a reproduction of it, that's probably how it would be listed. Um, Dolly himself didn't actually title it that, but it it explains a little bit of its origin. Um, St. John of the Cross, great Spanish Carmelite mystic during the Counter-Reformation, um, had a vision uh, and as part of the vision he had the, he had seen the the crucified christ at a particular angle and although he wasn't an artist himself he kind of sketched it um on on the side of of the notebook that he was writing in and centuries later salvador dali saw it um and i believe i think he may have seen it at the huntington library in california but don't quote me on that um and he was fascinated by it because of the the somewhat strange angle um, that St. John had had kind of rendered it at. And then he claims that he had his own kind of dream or vision or whatever in which something prompted him to paint it, um, to take that image and use it as the foundation or the basis for a painting. And so it is... I I would say after the, the the persistence of memory, i.e. the melting clocks, which is Dolly's most famous painting that's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, this is probably his most famous painting. It's certainly his most beloved painting um, um, among Catholics, at least. And the, although some, you know, some people don't particularly care for it, but, you know, to each his own. Um, and for for those who this isn't conjuring up anything or you haven't looked it up on Google yet, um, it's an image of um, a crucified man who is seen from overhead, um, and he is suspended over a seascape. 
um, where there are a few fishermen and some rocks and 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 that kind of thing. Um, it you probably had it on the cover of a religion textbook or a theology, you know, book when you were in college. Um, you've probably seen it on things like uh, mass cards or um, you know bookmarks or things like that. Um, it's it's definitely I, I, I would I would find it hard to think of a religious painting from the 20th century that is better known. Um, now, part of that is also because there wasn't really a lot of religious painting created by great artists in the 20th century. But be that as it may, um, it is it is a very important painting, um, and it's certainly a, a, a piece that has attracted a lot of attention and a lot of controversy ever since it was painted. Um, one of the reasons that it attracted controversy was because this was during a period in his career when Dali was exploring his faith, um, such as it was, and there was a sense on the part of those in the art establishment that he was moving away from the kind of radical surrealism that he had embraced and promoted um, during the first part of his career, and that he was moving into something that was perhaps, while still innovative, more conventional and more geared toward popularity um, rather than pushing the envelope. Um, it's during this period of time, uh, beginning in the 1950s, that he creates a number of religious works um this this being the most famous but there are others there's the sacrament of the last supper in the national gallery here in dc which when it was purchased was the most popular painting in the national gallery um it's rather hard to believe that that was the case but you know because now they have it kind of shoved off in a corner and everybody's a little embarrassed by it um there's what's called the cubist crucifixion that's at the metropolitan museum in new york um there's the madonna of port yagat which i think is in St. Petersburg, but I might be wrong about that. And then there's a temptation of St. Anthony. So he did he did a series of, of religious paintings in, in this very kind of mixture of surrealism and photorealism. And the painting was uh, completed in, in 1951. Um, and it was purchased by an art gallery in, of all places, Glasgow, Scotland. Um, and it left after a brief tour in Barcelona and Madrid, it left for Scotland and it hasn't been back to Spain since. Um, it was returned to Spain in November of last year and it is at the Dali Museum, uh, the main Dali Museum, I should say, which is in the town of Figueres, which is the, the city where Dali was born about an hour north of Barcelona. Um, and it's there until the end of April. And so, this is one of those paintings going back to something I said earlier of, um, you know, you learn, you learn to understand a work of art more by actually being able to see it in person. And this was one of those pieces that I never thought I would see in person because no offense to the good people of Glasgow, it's not high on my bucket list. Um, perhaps if I go to a conference or something someday and it happens to be in Glasgow, I will go see, um, you know, the, the the art museum there. I'll go see the the work of you know Charles Rennie Mackintosh, who, who I've written about before, a great Scottish architect and designer. 
Um, but it's not really a high priority for me. And so I just assumed because this painting hardly is ever lent, um, that I was never going to see it. And so when I read about, um, in one of the Barcelona newspapers that it was coming, um, I immediately contacted my publisher and said, I need to, you know, go up there and, and, and write about this. Um, and this actually references something that I said earlier as well, which is the only reason that I know that it was there. Um, was because I read a local newspaper. There was virtually no coverage on a national level. The Spanish never, you know, at, at any kind of Ministry of Culture level, kind of promoted internationally to say, hey, you know, you should go up to Figueres and, you know, visit the Dali Museum in his hometown and see where he lived. And, you know, this painting is back for the first time in 70-something years. They didn't do anything. Um, but anyway, so I went and uh, I... I'm very grateful in that when I contacted them, um, they arranged for me to meet with the head of, of all the Dali museums, because there's three of them um, in Spain, um, and and with the the gentleman who actually runs the the main museum where where the, the exhibition is taking place, and, and, and also with the head of their press office. And they met me at the front door and took me up there and showed me all the things, and we talked about it for a long, long time, and they just gave me a ton of time. They're just the nicest people in the world. Um, and one of the one of the interesting things that they did with respect to this show is something that I can understand why they did it, but um, is a little bit odd to me. Um, and it shows, I think, something that I've noticed quite a bit of in just European politics and culture generally, which is that the EU seems to promote this idea of creating a kind of United States of Europe. But in fact, what it does is that it actually fractures people. Um, it, it doesn't really function as a melting pot so much as a way for people to distinguish themselves um, from other groups. Um, and one of the ways that it does that is that different groups who feel um, rightly or wrongly, that they have been put upon for some reason, um, tend to promote their own culture without tying it to other cultures, or at least not to cultures that they don't particularly care for. Um, and so hence, you have arguably the one of the most important Dali paintings on the planet coming back to Spain, and the only people who care are the people in the region where it's going to be shown. Right. I mean, I, I spoke to people in Seville and in Madrid who didn't even know that it was in Spain. You know, they, they had absolutely no idea because it wasn't covered by the national press. And when it came to the exhibition, instead of calling it uh, the Christ of Dali or calling it the Christ of St. John of the Cross, which is what most of us, you know, would know it as, they called it the Christ of Port Llegat. And Port Llegat is the town where um, Dali had his, his house for the sort of second half of his life. Um, and it's the beach scene that appears at the bottom of the painting is in the bay there. Um, and that's great. But I, I did ask about this and they said, well, we're trying to make that connection um, to the fact that this has regional significance, right? That this is, this is a Catalan painting and it's connected to the landscape here and, and all that kind of stuff. And as someone who is half Catalan, I totally get that. I totally understand that regional pride, you know, hooray. As, as you may know, there's there's a rather active independence movement that's causing a lot of issues um, in Spain 
uh, in Kotzlein, and there has been for a long time. But from a marketing point of view, um, people who are not Catalan or people who have never really looked into Catalan history or don't necessarily even know a lot about Dali have never heard of Port Gigan. And so to title your exhibition after this little beach town, lovely as it is, and as significant to Dali as it is, um, is a little small-minded to me. I, I think that you could have done the same thing with your exhibition and connecting it to local things, right? Because they were very keen on pointing out the local connections to me. Um, without having it get lost as, well, I've never heard of the Christ of Port Yagat. It's like, there's a reason for that, because there isn't one. <laughs> you know? No Wikipedia, if you go look it up, it ain't called that, you know? Um, and this is something that that i find is is quite typical unfortunately and in, in a lot of europe and and obviously you may be able to, to to speak to to poland but there is this kind of provincialism that i find very odd over there where they're they're absolutely obsessed with what's going on regionally but they don't see a bigger picture um that, that there is no kind of we it's a sort of an us and them and this in a small scale sort of reminded me of that. Now, putting that aside, partially, um, I, I want to say that one of the interesting things to realize about this picture is that as absolutely is the case, the landscape or the seascape is this particular small town in Spain. It is a real place and they do a great job in the show of um kind of doing a dissolve in this sort of film room where they they do a close-up of this particular um seascape and then they fade out to a film that someone has shot of the actual place right because a lot of people think well Dali just made this up in his mind it's like no it's what he saw when he went to the beach right it's his favorite beach in the world and so that's why he paints it down there um and that's av absolutely a great collection connection but one of the interesting things that i took away from it was that um dolly really wanted to connect himself to, connect himself to the old masters in a way that was being explicitly rejected by a lot of his contemporaries who didn't want to have anything to do with sacred art who didn't want to have anything to do with um traditional representational art and so in the picture um the the figure of christ himself is based on studies that Dali made in a way that a Baroque or a Renaissance artist would understand and that when he was living in California he got a Hollywood stuntman to suspend himself on ropes from the ceiling so that Dali could see from a from a, an anatomical point of view how different stresses would affect the musculature of someone who was muscular because you know he was a he was a stuntman um in the neck and the back and so on and like how that would look right and so he did all these really detailed photographs and sketches of that and so there's this american aspect to the picture um i've already touched on the you know katzalan seascape part of the picture but then the concept itself is coming from a castilian carmelite um and part of the imagery in terms of how he's thinking about the figure of christ comes from um Belakith, 
who you know is an Andalusian painter who who moved to Madrid. And then the little figures, as they found out through the research, are based on little sketches and things from different artists. One of them is from Velázquez. One is from Louis Lanin, who's a, a 17th century French painter. I forget who the other one's from. But there are all these different things that are going on in the painting in which Dali is taking bits and pieces from both what he could do in the contemporary world in which he lived in, but then also looking back to the old masters and looking back to their influence and kind of bringing those things together. And, and it works, um, but it is so antithetical to the time that we live in now in which there is an almost hatred of any art that is representational of any art that attempts to be beautiful of any art that pretends that it has some connection to the sacred everything is ugly everything is lazy everything has no skill um it's all just nonsense and when and when you look at the amount of work that dolly spent because of the precision of the way that he painted um to get the musculature right to get the lighting right to get the balance of the figures right and the perspective because it's a very complicated perspective to be believable um he really is working like an old master he really is working like you know somebody uh, say in florence in 1450 who's doing all these lines of you know a very complicated linear perspective and figuring out how it's going to work and doing all this by hand um there's no autocad <laughs> you know there's no ai uh creating all this stuff he has to figure all of this out in his head and it you know took him years to do it and you come away from that really impressed by the fact that although now it would be very difficult to name a prominent contemporary artist who could do something like that um dali is at the tail end of the academic system that existed in europe and america um up until roughly world war ii in which people had to learn how to draw and you couldn't just pick up a paintbrush and say you know now i'm a painter right um that education dies off after world war ii in which people just want to talk about their feelings right and how dare you criticize me for not actually being able to draw well you can't draw sorry um he is one of the last few people that you know, continued into relatively recent times, you know, he died in the 1980s, um, that actually could draw, that actually did know how to paint. And one of the paintings in the show <clears throat> is, a, is a piece that he did called The Basket of Bread, which is also familiar to a lot of people because you often see it on, you know, used as a cover, for example, in books about the Eucharist or something like that. And it's a basket of bread. That's all it is. And it is a little miracle of paint. And you look at it and you're like, was this painted in the 1950s? Was this painted in the 1750s? Was this painted in the 15th? I don't know. It is absolutely timeless. But very few people can do that anymore because we have lowered our standards of what art means so much that he really does stand out as someone who could keep company with the old masters, could could have competed with those guys if he you know, had lived... 300 years ago because he was willing to put in the time he was willing to put in the effort and he was you know just a creative genius and and that's one of the things that i i was absolutely impressed by when i you know actually got to see the painting finally in person two notes on that um 
you know, I hope I, uh, if my family's listening to this, I won't say who in my family, but one of my siblings went to uh, the Art Institute School, uh, the School of Art in Chicago. And I was helping her with one of her pieces. And I, I got, this was my first chance to go into like the student gallery and look at what are these, you know, what are the, say, so-called masters of today working on? And I was, I was so appalled at the lack of anything close to something like a craft. And I looked at, at the, my sibling um, and I said, oh, why are you paying for this school? Like, what are you, what are you actually learning and coming away with? Like, I, you know, hopefully when you go to the university, you come out a better writer. Um, but is this, it seems like it's not doing that um, in any way. And so actually, when we finally got to the spot where um, the artwork was going to be displayed, right next to that was actually a student who was standing, I'm not, I'm not making this up, a student who was dressed up as the Easter Bunny, because this piece of art was to have your photo with the Easter Bunny. Um, I don't know who would go into any gallery to go see that. I mean, I, for one, go into admire the beauty, which also is part of the craft. And the second thing I just wanted to say, when, you know, growing up in Chicago, um, or right outside of Chicago, we had the Picasso um, in, 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 I think, Daily Plaza there. And I remember just seeing all this kind of modern art and, like, you know, Pablo Picasso stuff, thinking, okay, oh, come on, anybody can kind of put these th these shapes together and do that. But then when I finally went to Barcelona, when I was in college in, in Madrid, I went to the Picasso Museum there. And I got to see, like, his, the trajectory of his career. I was blown away. I was like, oh, my gosh, when he's, like, what is it, like 15 years old? Yeah. He's drawing yeah. something that, like, is almost exactly looks like Velasquez. Um, yes. and, and, and so then you start to see that actually there's something more going on here. Yeah. And so then I started to look at, like, oh, my gosh, every single line I saw it differently. And, but yeah. it, it was that mastering that craft that actually first then made me to see him as a true artist and anything that he did as truly art. Do you, do you have yeah. anything to say about that? Yeah, I, I, I have given this example so many times that that I, I can't even take, because people are like, yeah, oh, Picasso, I can do that. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> look what Picasso could do when he was 15. Like, yeah. look at look what Picasso could do when he was 19, when he had, because I, I wrote a piece about this um, um, for, the, for the, the magazine about a year ago. Because um, it was the 50th anniversary of his death last year. And uh, he had his first solo show when he was 19. He did 100 pieces. And they're a miracle. I mean, like, everyone who went was like, you're still in art school. Like, like how are you doing this? You know, and so then eventually he drops out of art school and moves to Paris. And, you know, but the, the point being, like Picasso, um, Dolly, Edward Hopper, uh, Miro, like uh, all of those guys, um, they learned how to draw. And drawing is the foundation of painting. If you can't draw, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to paint well. And practice, 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 right? I mean, you wouldn't let someone go into Carnegie Hall to play, you know, Rachmaninoff if they hadn't done tons of exercises right, to, to understand how to get their hands to work and build up strength in their hands and all this kind of stuff to play a really complicated piece. So why 
would you display the work of someone who hasn't actually done any work, but has simply just, you know, rolled around in an Easter Bunny costume talking about their feelings? They haven't done any work. I mean, it's, it's, it's nonsense. I find it interesting, too, as I was thinking about this ahead of the call today, you know, a lot of, a lot of climate change protesters who throw things, you know, soup and so on, uh, at paintings, I can't recall any of them throwing this stuff at any works of contemporary art. It's always beautiful things from the past. It's Van Gogh's sunflowers. It's Botticelli's, you know, um, uh, spring. It's, you know, Velasquez Venus. It's, it's, you know, portraits. It's, it's beautiful representational things. That is what they are throwing their excrement at you know, to draw attention to themselves. They're never attacking pieces by contemporary artists who can't draw and who can't create valid works of art that will be throwing in the garbage a hundred years from now saying, why did we pay a hundred million dollars for this thing? Um, and I think that's very interesting because I think even people who are crazy town banana pants um, recognize truth and beauty in things and they hate it. Um, they don't want things that are truthful. They don't want things that are beautiful. They don't want things that show skill because they don't have any themselves. And so they take this out on other people. So to reject someone like Dolly or Picasso because they're weird, um, you can absolutely do that. You don't have to like something just because everybody else tells you to. But make an informed choice in the sense of understand that these people do have formation. The fact that they rejected their formation, okay, right? That might inform your decision, but it's not that they can't paint. It's that they don't want to paint in the way that they were told that they had to paint, right? And so sometimes you will find someone like Dali, who is weird. I mean, he's just, he's just weird. Um, where you look at some of his art and say, that is really unattractive. And I really don't like that. But then you have pieces like this. And to be in the presence of this picture, and particularly in the way that the, that the museum had it set up. Um, you know, and I mentioned this in the piece, Dali, Dali struggled with his faith his whole life. Um, he, he was on a path. I, I hope he stayed on the path. You know, we, we don't judge people only, you know, the big cheese upstairs does that. Um, but he was sincerely asking questions and he was sincerely trying to find God in the world around him. And one of the quotes that I give in the article, he says, I want my Christ in this picture to be beautiful because God is beautiful. You know, well, someone who is living this hedonistic, you know, crazy lifestyle doing, you know, drugs with Mick Jagger and all this other stuff that he did. Um, he's still looking. You know, and and who am I to tell someone else on their journey that, you know, they're on on the wrong path if they get to the right point, right? As as St. Jose Maria Scriva says in, in the way, you know, don't despair of your wayward friend, because he may yet become a Saint Augustine while you remain a nobody, you know? And that's one of the things that I saw in that picture is is that Dali was someone who had lived a very hedonistic lifestyle and would continue to live a very hedonistic lifestyle. But there was still something that was calling him back to his faith. There was still something that that he really thought, there is something bigger than me. 
um, I, I'm, I'm trying to be the greatest, most famous artist in the world. And yet there is someone who is the greatest artist in the world and I'm not him, you know, um, in a strange way for someone who is not known for being humble. I think this painting and, and, you know, his religious paintings in general are paintings of humility or paintings of, of, of an artist who is sort of recognizing that he has been given these incredible gifts and is you know, proud of them. But at the same time, he knows that he's not the sole and exclusive author of them, if that makes any sense. And one of the things that I have a problem with with regard to contemporary art is the lack of humility that you see on the part of these artists, that we are simply supposed to embrace what they do because they happen to you know, belong to a particular group or because they happen to have had a particular experience and therefore, how dare you, um, you know, to quote former child star Greta Thunberg, how, how dare you, um, you know, criticize, you know, anything about me? Well, I'm criticizing you because you can't draw. And if you can't draw, I'm not really interested in your paintings, frankly, you know? Mm -hmm. So Dolly, Dolly is definitely someone who, when, just like Picasso, you look at the stuff he did when he was a kid, you look at the stuff he did when he was in art school and he could draw like an angel. He absolutely could. He just didn't want to, you know? Um, there are lots of things that we probably all should do. There are lots of talents that we are given that we don't make full use of. And perhaps we develop them later. Perhaps we never do. And we regret that. Um, but we all have that, you know, and Dolly went down a particular path, not a path I would have chosen, but he could still produce things like this that are just, as I said, just really moving to see in person. Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, Billy, we had a conversation with James Matthew Wilson, and we were talking about poetry, uh, somewhat along the same lines as we're talking now about painting. Um, we, we were talking about modernism and how, you know, how these great modernist master poets, you know, they knew about um, rhythm and meter. They knew how to write in a classical poetic form. Um, and, but then they, they deviated from it, but then there were some who, and, and maybe T.S. Eliot is the greatest among them, who, who, who sort of woke up and decided, actually, we can only go so far with this. Like we can, we can only see the reality behind everything broken apart until it gets a little bit too broken apart. And then we have to come back to a more classical form. Right. And I wonder if this Dali painting is, is sort of like, you know, people think of the melting clocks, right? And that would, I think, to most people come across as kind of quintessentially abstract, you know? I mean, even though that maybe isn't the right word for it or whatever, but right? But this painting of of Christ is so not abstract, right? As you say, I mean, it's a real place. It's based on sort of these, you know, it, he's self-consciously in the tradition with, with these other great masters. So I just wonder, like, you know, is this painting kind of a harbinger of something different and better, you know, like Dali kind of waking up and, and in a sense, maybe not even consciously, but, but declaring it's kind of time to return to something more classical. I, I, th I think that's exactly what it is. Um, I think that Dali was convinced that he needed to save painting. Uh, he saw what was happening, particularly again, I, I, the watershed, as far as I'm concerned, the watershed is world war II. I think that the art that was produced in general, art produced after World War II is overwhelmingly bad um, compared to what came before it. That isn't to say that in the second half of the 20th century that everything was bad. No, but most of it was and is. Um, and you can look at individual people and say, well, but what about Andrew Wyeth? 
for example, you know, great, magnificent painter, but he's the exception, right? He's the exception rather than the rule. And you look at the art that came before World War II, and you run down these lists and lists of different schools and different names and stuff, and there's dozens and dozens of them, and you may like one more than the other, but they're all experimenting, they're all trying different things, they're all doing different styles, and then something happens in which you know, the embrace of socialism or whatever it is in which people's values just go out the window. And um, we are stuck with boxy architecture. We are stuck with garbage art. Um, And there is this kind of focus on newness for the sake of being new rather than um, kind of reviving or referencing things from the past. Um, and Dali very consciously saw what was happening because he had been a part of it and said, um, I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I, I think that we can go forward and do things that are meaningful to the time in which we live and, and the things that are going on right now. You know, he was fascinated with space, for example, and there's a lot of kind of spacey things in, in, in what he does, particularly with his religious pain. Um that are relevant for the time in which he lives right they're relevant for the mid-20th century they're relevant for the space age and the atomic age and all that stuff um that would not have been relevant to someone living in 1850 or 1550 but somebody always has to break the mold right i mean otherwise we just and and nothing against the eastern churches but then you just end up with icons Right. You keep repeating the same thing over and over and over and over again. So that unless you're an expert, you can't tell the difference between an icon that was painted in, you know, 1905 and one that was painted in 1605. Because to you, as a non-expert, they look exactly the same. Right. But there is a huge difference between what, say, you know, Giotto is doing um, in, you know, the early Renaissance in Central Italy versus what, you know, Bernini is doing in rome you know several hundred years later right it's still the same subject matter it's still the nativity it's still the crucifixion it's still the resurrection it's still portraits of popes it's still you know it's all that stuff the style has completely changed and the things that are influenced by the art has completely changed because the times have changed right things things don't look the same anymore um and so dolly i think is someone who recognized that you know there is a point beyond which we don't need to go. We we can't forget the 2,000 or so years of Western history, of Western artistic development that have brought us to this point and just chuck it all and say that none of it means anything, right? Um, I think that he tried to pull us back from that brink. Was he ultimately successful? Maybe a little bit. You know, not as much as he had hoped. Um, he didn't develop any followers, for example. And that's one of the difficult things. You know, when you look at a lot of these people who say, maybe we're going too far, they don't have schools. And and a perfect example of that is Edward Hopper, because most people love Edward Hopper, right? They just, they love his cityscapes. They love, you know, his, you know, figures and sunlight and all this kind of stuff. He had no pupils, Right. There's there's no school of Edward Hopper. There's no school of Salvador Dali. You might have people that do things in their style, but nobody goes and studies with them. It's not like the ateliers in the 19th century or the, you know, 
sort of pupilships that people would have in the Renaissance and the Baroque, where if you wanted to learn how to paint, you got an apprenticeship with, you know, Botticelli or Perugino or whoever it is, and you learned how to grind paint, and you learned how to, you know, attach canvas, and you learned how to prepare it, and you learned how to do under, you learned all the steps, all the craft of how to become an artist. And then eventually, they would let you make your own stuff. Right. But you had to learn all of that first before somebody would let you pick up a brush or pick up a chisel. We don't do that anymore. There are no apprenticeships anymore for people who work in most areas of contemporary art. You just simply pick up something and start working with it. And it's art because you say that it is or because you can get enough people, you know, who, you know, have galleries uh, on, on, on the Upper West Side to tell you that it's great art and that they can put a few zeros on the price for you. So it's in a way, a, a kind of a, a, a mile marker at the time that this work was created for Dali to say, maybe we're going too far. Um, for him to try to kind of do a stopgap of saying, look, there's other stuff that we could do. We could still do realistic things. We could still do things that exhibit talent and craft and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and again, there are a few there's a handful of artists that are contemporaries of his that you could point to and say, yeah, you know, so-and-so was doing that and so-and-so was doing that. But for the most part, because it's easy, um, most modern and contemporary art is garbage because there's no actual art going on. It's just messes, right? And so I think that um, looking at a painting like this and being able to have, as happened to me, an emotional connection to it when you see it. Uh, to, to be able to spend time in front of it and just be like, this has struck me. I don't know why it struck me, but it has, you know, um, with this very weird religious painting and, and you know, just kind of seeing it in person. Um, that's very rare. It's very rare. And, and he managed to do it. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time, Billy. I want all of our listeners to um, go and check out your article. It's called The Divine Dali and His Christ at the Spectator World. And Billy, you have you have a website as well with a lot of your stuff on it. What's the address for that? It is uh, W, B as in boy, D as in dog, Newton, all one word, uh, dot com. And if you go over there, um, it tells you a little bit about me. There's a contact form that you can get in touch with me there if you, know, you want me to come speak to your college or something uh and it also has links to my media so the links to the stuff i write for a spectator um past things i've done past talks that i've given or you know panels that i've been on with like you know the catholic art institute for example because i work with them a lot um and and yeah and, and links to my social media as well so absolutely feel free to 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 get in touch with with me about anything uh if you have questions about stuff i get people who I don't even know, writes me all the time saying, I'm going to Spain. Uh, like, what should I see? Or like, where should I eat? Or like, where's a good flamenco place or stuff like that? I I could run a side business in that because I, I get that on an almost daily basis from people who, like you, are wandering around on Instagram and they're like, wow, that restaurant looks great. You know, uh, wow, like what an amazing monastery or like, how do I get there? You know, like that kind of thing. I'm always happy to do that. I, I really should have some kind of a retainer from the you know Spanish National Tourist Office because I do this all the time. Terrific stuff. Our guest today has been William Newton. Billy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me.
To our listeners, please don't forget to visit us at spacealbiinstitute.com. Sign up for our email list and uh, review this podcast. Give us a good review so that more people will find us and uh, check out what we're doing. Until next time, God bless and live in hope.